when I was working at UCLA then, you know, it hadn't been that long uh, before, you know, people were basically saying, uh, let's get rid of our nitrate, let's just give it to UCLA. Studios would never do that today. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's one of the legendary studio names, and a streaming channel, and a new series of Blu-rays called Paramount Presents. We talked to Andrea Callas, Senior Vice President for Asset Management at Paramount, about how a studio takes care of its legacy for all the ways we can see movies today. Plus, one of Paramount's great stars, Mae West, is featured in nine new Blu-rays. I talk about her with British film scholar Kat Ellinger. So come up and subscribe to us sometime at the podcast app of your choice. Thanks. I've put a pellet of poison in one of the vessels. Which one? The one with the finger of a pestle. The vessel with the pestle? Yes. But you don't want the vessel with the pestle. You want the chalice from the palace. Uh, I don't want the vessel with the pestle. I want the chalice from the what? The chalice from the palace. Hmm? It's a little crystal chalice with the figure of a palace. Does the chalice from the palace have the pellet with the poison? No, the pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. Oh, the pestle with the vessel. The vessel with the pestle. What about the palace from the chalice? Not the palace from the chalice. The chalice from the palace. Where's the pellet with the poison? In the vessel with the pestle. Don't you see? The pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace. That's the court jester, made in 1955 in the cutting-edge technology of its day, VistaVision, and released on Blu-ray in 2021 from a 6K digital scan of the negative and other elements. It's one of the latest releases in a series called Paramount Presents, in which both vintage classics, Roman Holiday, The Greatest Show on Earth, and modern ones, Ghost, Love Story, get the deluxe restoration treatment for home video. Behind all the preservation and restoration of Paramount's intellectual property is an archive, and its head, Paramount Pictures Senior Vice President of Asset Management, Andrea Callas. She kindly agreed to talk to Nitrateville Radio to tell us about how a modern-day studio approaches the need to preserve and make available its assets in a world of home video and streaming services, and also one in which movies are more likely to originate or be completed in a purely digital environment. I spoke with her from Los Angeles. Thank you for doing this. And, sure. Um, let's just start. I mean, I think people have an idea of what... You know, preserving films in 1940 or 1960 meant. But tell me what your job is today. So I oversee uh, both the archives for Paramount Pictures as well as a group called Mastering, uh, which um, makes sure that we have everything we need for uh, basically for home distribution, right? So everything's in the right format and all put together well. So 
the archive involves, um, we have vaults, we have different collections, we have a costume collection, music collection, um, of course the films themselves, uh, and then we have this ongoing uh, preservation program that we've had in place uh, really since about 2010-11, where we're regularly going in and making sure that the films that we have what we call significant rights on, or what you know I would say is sort of a duty of care because we hold the rights to them for so long, um, we make sure that they're okay. Uh, that, you know, if they're deteriorating or if they have problems, physical problems, that we're, we're making sure they're all right. And we do that really through scanning. Uh, so we scan at the best possible resolution. Um, and uh, now, uh, you know, color gamut as well to capture that original content digitally. Um, and we go through and we do that on approximately... 100 titles a year uh, so that's that's and that's our preservation program i'll stop there see if there's any direction <laughs> you want to take off on that okay so what all does paramount own uh i know that it does not own paramount films from what is it 1929 to 1949 29 to 49 yeah uh so that those were uh titles that um paramount sold to um then MCA, which is now Universal, NBC Universal, uh, now Comcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, they sold those in 1956, I think. Um, and so yeah, those those sort of golden age titles, you know, Mae West, the Marx Brothers, you know, th those are great films. Sadly, not that I'm bitter, are no longer <laughs> no longer ours to take care of. Uh, we do have silent films that we've preserved, you know, things before 1929. Uh, then we also uh, have the Republic Library. Uh, so that was an acquisition that was made in the 80s, uh, which has, you know, uh, 1,200 films in them, that, and as well as serials and other short subjects. So that's another part of our, you know, sort of our library that we care for. And then, of course, the Paramount films after 49 to the present, right? Okay. And then does it include, uh, you know, the t television series? I mean, I hear the Star Trek show is popular, so. Yeah, so right now um, we're, we, we, we just reunited again as a company. We split up back in 2006. CBS and Paramount split up, and at that point, CBS actually took everything that was an episode and Paramount took everything that was a feature film and now we're getting back together again. So yeah, we're actually starting to look at uh, some of the television, uh, preser preserving television as well. And, but we're just starting that project. Okay. So tell me how you got into this. So I uh, went to graduate school at UCLA and I needed a, a job <laughs> and I was looking, it was literally on a billboard and there was a notice uh, that UCLA Film and TV Archive had work study jobs. And one of the reasons I actually went to UCLA was because I had read about Bob Gitt um, who had, was doing this thing called preservation. And so I was, I was sort of curious about it from the beginning. So I thought, oh cool, I can work part-time at the archive while I'm going to graduate school, awesome. And I got there and it was just the most amazing time to be at the UCLA Film and TV Archive. Not only was Bob Gitt there, 
but uh, Martha Yee, who was just an expert in cataloging, uh, Eddie Richmond, who was, you know, a curator and archive manager, uh, just sort of extraordinary people that were there at the time. And so my work-study job quickly turned into a full-time position working in newsreel preservation. Uh, so while I finished my degree, I was, I was working in newsreel preservation, which uh, was also a great learning experience because uh, I had to do everything. I had to do the research on what things to preserve. I had to justify why I was preserving it, uh, you know, because, you know, there were newsreel pools in those days. So was this a duplicate material? Was it unique to the collection, you know, or uh, why was this important to preserve? And then I actually had to do the physical film prep uh, before the film was preserved photochemically of sitting at a bench, winding through it, fixing splices, doing all that work, really getting some real grounding and sort of film motion picture technology. And then, you know, and then also doing the research that I would hand over to the catalogers so that they would catalog this well. So I got a great sort of wonderful education in some of the real foundational aspects of of film archiving in those in, in those early days of my career and it's it's it stood me very well over my over the over the over time did you start talking like a newsreel reporter <laughs> i i have been known to imitate uh yes the newsreel reporter from time to time i it's been a while since i've done it so i'm not going to spin that up right now but yes uh i i can't uh, i can't lie uh, there were times when I did uh, imitate Edwin C. Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so this would have been somewhere in the in the video age. How how much were studios interested in in this sort of preservation at that point and taking it so seriously? Yeah, it was it was it was interesting. It's been an interesting dynamic because I've worked both in you know sort of not for profit cultural archives as well as the studio side and yeah and when I was working at UCLA then you know it hadn't been that long uh, before you know people were basically saying uh, let's get rid of our nitrate let's just give it to UCLA studios would never do that today you know um, so I think that it was it was when I started really working in archives it was just as sort of home media was taking hold and people were renting VHS tapes and really understanding the on, you know, the sort of financial ongoing value of a library. So, you know, I mean, obviously Paramount didn't see a value of it when they sold off films in the 50s. And then it, you know, it's just always evolved. But I think, yeah, it was, it's been an interesting dynamic as, you know, the financial value of, of libraries has, as, you know, and, and right now it's, it's never been more valuable to a studio. Um, there's tons of interest in the catalog. Uh, which has been great. I think it's, you know, overall, the fact that more and more people are interested in, in films from any era has been great. But yeah, at that time, um, it was in those days where it was, um, you know, that there, there was an important moment in those days, too, where just the idea of film preservation was some, th some things people knew about. Um, you know, the whole colorization uh, sure, issue sure. had come up. And, you know, in a way, even though people sort of uh, sneer at it, it was a great thing for film preservation in a lot of ways because it, it sort of shined a light on the issues. And as a result, I think, you know, some of the, like the congressional hearings about how films should be taken care of, you know, uh, the National uh, Film Preservation Foundation was formed. 
you know, the, um, uh, the, uh, the actual research into the, uh, the conservation of film started being taken more seriously. Um, you know, all sorts of sort of good things for preservation came out of that sort of the publicity around colorization. So it was really interesting times in a way. It was a sort of turning point. Yeah. Did it take a while for people to get the idea that quality was just going to keep going up in home video? So you needed to keep the highest possible quality because it's not like VHS was a was exactly delivering a message of, you know, connoisseurship in video quality back then. Yeah, I think uh, I think every time I think we know that now more than we knew that then. I think, you know, there was an idea that um, if you just copied to digital or you copied to another format, you wouldn't need the original. And that dates back to very early film preservation times where, you know, when when nitrate was first understood as this not only, you know, very flammable, but very highly deteriorative substance, the actual, you know, ISO standard was you copy the nitrate to acetate and you throw the nitrate away. You know, so that kind of concept, and that's true in libraries too. You know, there's been lots of um, people who've scanned a lot of newspapers to microfilm and then thrown the newspapers away. Right, now that right. whole sort of migration concept has been an issue across preservation for a long time. But I think we know now very well that that original negative is such an important element. I mean, it's not only the most important element to scan from and to create restorations and preservations from, it's an artifact. It's an important artifact. You know, it has information on it, you know, and it has, it, it, and it also is, you know, I think in its, in its own right, kind of an artistic artifact. So I think we have a better, much better understanding of that now, uh, what we had to evolve to get there. Yeah, I know it's kind of, funny i think about you know all the talk about things like nfts for artworks and it's like well that's that's just a made-up thing but the negative that's really you know that's the thing that william wyler handled or you know whoever so i'm fascinated by nfts because i'm you know because i'm very interested in digital preservation and so when they first started to come out the nfts i thought i said is this a way to preserve a digital object. And it actually isn't. It really is just a, a certificate of authenticity more than anything else. Yeah. The actual, you know, digital artifact itself is is a separate ID con you know, object. Anyway, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw another uh, a talk you gave and it introduced kind of an interesting concept. I mean, we're, we've all sort of absorbed this idea that we don't have movies anymore. We have content. Uh, things are content. But you then used another word, which was the carrier. And, you know, the content is kind of an amorphous, imaginary thing. It has to have a place to be carried. And that, you know, carriers are the, real, the place where the real world meets it and it may go bad. Yeah, I was really trying to explain that it, when we have talked about preservation um, before digital, we did focus on the carrier. You know, we focused on keeping, and we still do to a certain extent. Like when we, when we conserve film, we put film in a vault that is 29 degrees and 35% RH because we know 
that those environmental conditions are best for the carrier of that content, the film itself, the stock, the chemistry that makes up the film stock will not degrade, right? And so the image won't degrade. Um, and, you know, when we, and same with uh, sort of videotape, you might, in, in, you know, it, videotape preservation, you moved from an obsolete tape format to a more, you know, uh, a newer tape format from, you know, D5 to DigiBeta or something like that. Um, so, you know, those, we, we focused on the carrier and with digital, we're really, you know, we're focused on the file. Uh, we are moving away from kind of thinking about the carrier and you really do have to think about the file itself and how to care for the file. So that's kind of what I was talking about. It was sort of a, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a, a con conceptual shift in, in preservation. Yeah. Well, I'll tell my wife that when uh, I buy too many uh, Blu-rays. Oh, I'm moving away from the carrier, dear. So. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's talk about what is what is preservation like now. I mean, I, I had I just watched last night the uh, the beautiful new Blu-ray of the Court Jester in Vista. Oh, great! Oh, I'm so glad you did. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah, we were really proud of that. Yeah, Vista Vision is so gorgeous anyway, and you know, here's here's I mean, about as colorful a movie as you could imagine. It looks like a Disney cartoon in real life, is what it looks like, and so. How did how did we get to that from? So yeah, so this is a really interesting. As you know, it's an eight per format, right? So it's twice the amount of real estate on one frame as you do from from a normal thirty five millimeter thing. So you've got just way more information to start with, right? Um, so that's part of the reason it looks so beautiful. Uh, Vista Vision negatives tend to fade, um, and so uh, we often use. Um, the yellow layer from our, our YCMs, because we have created YCM copies of our, our films over time, to actually introduce the color that was lost due to fading. So we did that with Court Jester as well, just to, and we do that digitally to sort of recombine and sort of bring that original color back. Um, so that was a full restoration that we did on that title. That's, uh, we make that distinction between preservation and restoration and it's it's a it's those two words can be used interchangeably. They can be used in different ways by different people. So I'm, when I'm speaking about them, I'm I'm talking about how the way we talk about them just in our own uh, within Paramount. And for us, restoration means we're doing a lot of extra work, right? And yeah, we do that yeah. on certain titles, the A titles in our library. So we will take the extra time to do more color correction, more cleanup and make sure it's really, really perfect. So uh, Court Jester was one of those, and it was just wonderful to work with VistaVision and work with. And, and there is just, just such an incredible color palette in that film. The purples, the greens, that it's so, you know, they really came out beautifully when we, when we did that restoration. When you're dealing with VistaVision um, or these larger formats, uh, the scanning of it, has to be taken, you know, with a little more care than you normally would. It's because you need a special gate for scanning, you know, large format films. And then you have to think about what resolution um, and what color gamut you're going to scan it in to capture the most amount of information. So, because it's just, it's more information. So you have to sort of think through that. Um, so 8K, 6K, you know, for resolution, 16-bit for color gamut, which is higher than, you know, I would do a, a sort of black and white title potentially. 
So you just have to think about what fits for, you know, capturing that, that, that larger amount of information. And also when you're actually doing the restoration yourself, you just have that much more data to push around. So you have to take that into consideration, the, you know, sort of how you, how you're managing it through the process after scanning into color correction. So you can, you know, and QC and all the different steps. Um, there's just a lot more data to deal with. Um, and um, it's, it, you know, facilities and other places that are doing this are getting better and better at managing those, those bigger files, but it's always a, a challenge. There's never enough storage. It's always the case. Um, but yeah, then adding in the yellow layer to bring that back. And then once that was there, then it was just an idea of, and we did actually have, um, we still have one VistaVision projector and on the Paramount lot, just one, not two, so we can't watch, you know, things continuously. We have to stop between reels. But we did have an actual Vistavision print that we could watch to see what that original color looked like. So we had that reference that we could go to. When we're doing restorations, we want to work with either people who are still around, directors or cinematographers, and if they're not, then we work with uh, research. We'll do research on different kinds of, um, you know, uh, that, that will tell us what the cinematographer or director was thinking uh, so that we can get the image right. Or if we have a, a vintage print, an original print, then that's a, an also a great reference. So that's, that's, that's our process for making sure that um, we, you know, we're, we're, we're doing right by the film to bring it back. And so once we have that reference, and sometimes we actually scan the, the print as well, if we can, um, so we can have that as a reference in the color room to go back and forth in so that we can take a look at that. And then we just work with a colorist to make sure we're fine-tuning the color and uh, doing cleanup and uh, correcting other issues as we go through. And um, it's, a, it's a process. We'll do it two, three times, sitting in a room, everybody sort of keeping their eye on it, catching things, and making it sure it, it looks as great as it does. That's... Uh, that's a sort of normal process with a little extra spice when you get to VistaVision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder sometimes, I mean, I get, I get Blu-rays of movies that I saw in the seventies and color pops on them way more than I ever saw in a theater back then. You know, I mean, printmaking maybe wasn't that great for a lot of things or often wasn't. And you know, a red will just, a super saturated red will just scream out of the Blu-ray. And it's like, that information was in the negative, I suppose, but people wouldn't have seen it back then. Do you have to deal with those kind of questions? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Like uh, Love Story, which we restored, which is out on uh, Paramount Presents as well right now. You know, I think um, there was a ton of information in that. And uh, we did want it to keep a palette that was really, uh, you know, sort of true to that. And yes, you can, just because of the clarity of the image, colors will pop a little bit more, but you can go too far. And you can, you know, sometimes you do have to check yourself and say, oh, that red looks really great. But that's not what, you know, that's not what the intention was. It was this red. So pull it back, pull it back. Let's get back in line with what we originally wanted to. So it's a... It's a delicate process, and you need to make sure that you're 
always, you know, honoring as best you can the original look, knowing that if you take a look at a newly remastered or restored title, it is, you know, it is going to look different than a badly lit projector in a theater from a doopy print when it first came out, you know. We're going to go for the ideal viewing experience, not necessarily the crappy one. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, so it, but, but in doing that, so we want to, we want to make, you know, it's kind of like every studio made these beautiful, um, uh, uh, sort of, um, it, pristine prints off the original negative, uh, for a lot of, a lot of movies. And we, we keep those around and they were, they're much better prints than, you know, uh, people would see in, in a, in a theater somewhere. And so those are often the ones we're using, you know, those great prints that we know that the, the cinematographer and the director saw to say, yep, that's my movie. Um, so, uh, so we are sort of trying to improve the experience to the best of our ability, but keeping within the sort of original intent. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's always a, it's a walk. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's talk about love story a little, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that makes me feel old that you have to restore a movie that I remember when it came out. Um, what, what goes into a movie of that vintage? Um, you know, I think um, in addition to some of the color work we were talking about, the other things that that always happens is that we deal with the, uh, films of those vintages that any optical work that was done either in titles or in fades and dissolves or things like that, it, it that didn't, you know, when, you, when you're doing it photochemically and then you're printing photochemically, uh, you you don't see you don't see those opticals so much you don't see the kind of the dirt that's sort of sometimes embedded in them or the lack of resolution they end up having out so we'll go back and if we can we will we will actually look through like any other thing that happens is as people were printing back in the day they would sometimes damage the original negative and then they would cut out chunks and place in a dupe section and then it just doesn't look so bad. If we can find that original, even if it's scratched or damaged, we can digitally, you know, repair that now and get back that sort of original look, uh, the, the best possible look for that. So those are the kinds of things that we will find in films of that era is, is trying to improve on making sure we have the best, um, you know, sort of original image all the way through the film. And that's what we did on, on Love Story as well. Yeah, you know, that was one of the things that I really liked in Court Jester. Um, I mean, you could kind of see when the opticals, you know, f dissolves were coming, as you can in so many older movies. But it was very clean compared to what you often see, where it just turns into a grainstorm from the last lines of dialogue in a scene. And also, it's a really great great disc for seeing the art of the glass matte painting you know i mean there's, mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. i mean they're recognizable but they're gorgeous so yeah yeah no it's that is a wonderful thing about uh restoring film is you get to sort of take this trip with all these different artisans that go into making a film you know when you're working on the soundtrack for example and uh you know you're trying to find the best possible recording of a particular song 
um, or you know, your or, or uh, as you mentioned, different matte painters. You sort of or costume designers. Just sort of seeing the detail in the costumes in Chester is fantastic. You know, um, so it's a wonderful <laughs> thing when you're spending a lot of time with a movie to appreciate the fact that it, there's so many different kinds of arts and talent that goes into making a film. It's really wonderful. When you say YCM records. That is, you take the color. Was it was it Technicolor with the three different strips to begin with, or you created that? So that's that's where the technology came from. Was you know from so the Technicolor cameras had three black and white strips in them and representing the primary colors, right? And then they would recombine and make the Technicolor prints. So that's where the technology came from. It became it morphed into a way to actually protect the film for insurance during um, the printing process. So after a film was, you know, a final cut was was made, um, uh, people used to make YCMs and they would use a, they would, you know, split out those three colors into three separate black and white strips. And then they would send those YCMs someplace else, uh, geographically separated. And that was an insurance uh, way to make sure that the bond for the film was okay. And if you lost something while you were printing it, you could get it back. Um, it, it turned into more of an archival step that most studios took. Uh, you know, they would, at the end of a, of a film, they would create those YCMs, and again, and they would send them to a separate place so that you sort of, you know, geographically separate some of your best elements representing the picture so you are mitigating disaster loss, basically. But they've come in handy. They've, they've saved our bacon a bunch of times when we have problematic issues with the original negative or we have color fade like we did with Vista or things like that. So they've come in as useful tools for restoration as well. And that's because black and white doesn't fade as color. Doesn't fade. Right. right. It doesn't fade. So it's, it's sort of recorded each one of those colors in a, in a black and white record. Now, does that still get done in this mostly shooting on digital age or is that an archaic step for that sort of thing? It's still done to a certain extent at some studios. We made the decision to stop doing it um, when we built out our digital, our really robust digital preservation infrastructure. Um, we decided to invest that money in preserving the final digital film because that's what is sort of the most original that we have when, especially as, you know, 80, 90% of films are shot digitally. Um, so we will still save film and we still save original negatives if they are created, um, or we'll save prints or we'll save all the dailies. So we still save the film, but we don't do the extra step of creating YCMs when films uh, actually deliver to us. Instead, we make sure that the digital intermediate or the final, you know, the final picture element is preserved in our digital infrastructure. And we spent about three years, you know, sort of developing and building that out. So we're, we're really sort of proud of it. It's a big, you know, and it's now has 25 petabytes of, of data, single copy, uh, and we have four copies. So it's really 100 petabytes of data. Uh, each copy is stored four times and then health checked. So every single file is checked annually to make sure there's no data loss. 
And if something is wrong with one of those files, it will sort of self-repair. It will flip itself out to another copy. So we always have, you know, four copies that have no data loss. So um, that's our that's what we do with all our preservation scans. That's what we do with the new features. So we do with audio, with uh, original camera files. So uh, it's a, a pretty huge infrastructure that we've built out. That again. When, and it's actually where a couple of other smaller groups are using our infrastructure because uh, it, it turned out to be we can ex we can do that without a huge expense because it's all automated, right? And um, right. it's also a good infrastructure. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I was reading an interview with you about checking all these things. You know, we know what film degrading looks like. I mean, I'm sure most of the people who listen to this will have seen decomposition on nitrate films and things like that. What happens that can go wrong with a digital copy? Uh, I think, you know, there's there's a lots of different stuff. The the first issue that we noticed when we, we came in, we did a sort of condition assessment of our films and our data to sort of really understand what the issues were so that we could address them correctly. And one of the things, you know, at that point, we didn't have an infrastructure, so we had what a lot of people have, which is hard drives and tapes on shelves with a barcode on it that have data on them. And we found when we did our sort of checking on some of those tapes and drives that we had 50% failure in one way or another. And that could be as simple as a particular cord for a hard drive could not find it anymore. You know, it could have been... Um, you know, a data tape was encrypted and somebody had forgotten the key. It could be that, um, you know, there's, and then down to the data itself, uh, you could find corruption. We found, for example, on some forms of data tape, uh, sometimes at the end of the tape, there was, you know, sort of an anomaly that meant that files were split between tapes. One image was split between tapes. And when we tried to actually look at that image, it almost looked like it had stripes across the image. You know, that was one form of corruption we saw. So it's, it's a variety of different things that we were trying to look at. So we knew that, you know, we needed to make sure that we could take care of that data well. And, and before we ingest anything into the digital infrastructure, we do a series of validation steps to make sure the data is really good before it goes in, because we don't want to do all these checks on bad data. Uh, so we do, uh, you know, extensive validation processes to make sure that the data is right before we ingest it. So those were the kinds of things we were finding, and, and that's why we built out the infrastructure the way we did. Well, let's talk about audio then for a minute. What typically survives on a title like the court jester? Well, you know, it's, it's um, I mean, in the home media days, um, you know, early on, there were a lot of uh, mono tracks that were made into 5.1 tracks. And we go back and listen to them, uh, both the mono and the, and the 5.1, to see if they still hold up, if there's any problems with them, if we could improve them in any way uh, by looking for, you know, split tracks and, if there's problems with that. So we'll, we'll kind of tear apart the 5.1 to see if we can improve it a little bit more um, sometimes. Other times they're fine. They, they, they've held up over time. Uh, but, you know, we'll, it, depending on the title and the different issues involved, um, we might, you know, dig in deeper into our, 
We try to do preservation generally on some of the other elements uh, that make up a film. So in addition to that final soundtrack, you know, they're discrete music tracks, discrete dialogue tracks, discrete effects tracks. We'll preserve those as well. Um, you know, so we'll, we, we try to make sure that we're taking care of all the different audio elements because they can come in useful over time. Now, do all these things, I mean, you're pres- preserving them in, you know, sort of an idealized form. Does that make them ready to go into all these d- other different media platforms or do you have to tweak them for different ones? Um, it's more sort of creating the right formats. So, you know, once we finish doing a restoration, we'll end up with a sort of a final set of frame-based, uh, you know, masters. So final color-corrected uh, DPX frames. And then from there, we create different uh, video masters. Uh, and those are used for all the different streaming formats or the Blu-ray disc that you saw or whatever, however they're being distributed. So it's more sort of reformatting. There are different color spaces that exist now. There's high dynamic range. There's 4K UHD, which is a standard dynamic range. There's, you know, there's HD. So all those different flavors, they have different, sometimes they have different color spaces. So you might, you have to do a different color pass to make sure that the color is correct for that color space. So that's another part of the process too, is making sure that you're, you know, taking those, those original files and making sure they're reformatted and in the right color space so that they can be distributed out. Okay. Let's talk about Republic for a minute, because I think this is really interesting. So I think this is probably removing a number of steps, but Blockbuster, you know, to talk of a a now defunct name, uh, acquired Republic, I think, and then Viacom acquired Blockbuster, something like that. Is that how they wound up in Paramount's basket? Um. You know, I think, I'm not sure if that's completely correct, but um, but I think it's sort of another securities route that I'm not actually precisely sure about. Okay. So anyway, by some weird corporate... Viacom, Viacom did acquire Republic at some point. That's true. Whether it came through Blockbuster or not, or through another venue, I'm just not sure. Okay. Anyway, so there you are with Republic. How did... How'd you figure out what to do with that and who would want it and things like that? Well, when, when we really looked at our, our condition assessment that I talked about earlier, and we looked across the library, and you know we had tons of conversations about what our sort of preservation priorities should be. And we did include things like A titles and important things and awards and talent and things like that, and, uh, and revenue, how it had done for the company over time. But, you know, through a ton of conversations, we really did end up with the condition of the film and what condition the film was was the most important priority. If it's starting to deteriorate, that brings it to the top of the queue for preservation. And the Republic films largely on nitrate and in many cases only having one copy of the film, only the original negative left, they became sort of the most at-risk materials. So they became our highest priority actually preserve so that's why we have preserved so many of them is that they needed it (laughs) that's really the answer and then i know martin scorsese has been involved with 
some of that in championing the Republic film. So how did that come or how did that impact you? Well, we've always worked really closely with the Film Foundation. I have for years, you know. They've been such an incredible advocate for film preservation over time, you know. They were right in the center of that whole colorization debate, and out of that became came the Film Foundation. And ever since, they've just always worked with archives and studios to make sure films are preserved. And so, you know, I sat down with uh, the Film Foundation was that like four or five years ago and and you know they knew that we had we were preserving the republic films and there was you know and they they were great because they were saying these are some that are really important you know make sure that these are in your queue make sure that these are preserved and these are the ones that we would like to really highlight in a film series that ended up happening at moma and that was great because they are really terrific films there are great great films that are in that republic collection you know, it was, a, it was a Poverty Row studio. Um, it was very much, you know, there was, the, the, these productions were not expensive, but they had plenty of great, you know, talent working there, great writers, great directors uh, that were working there just because they needed a gig or it was, you know, work to be done. And there was a certain freedom, I think, in the way they could make that. The MPAA wasn't looking at scripts as closely as they were with the major studios. There was, there was a lot more freedom. And so out of that, I think, you know, the, the films that um, Scorsese picked are, are, are really some of the greatest Republic films there. And it was wonderful to be able to showcase them at MoMA and then have a place on iTunes where people could stream them and enjoy them there. So that was a great outcome of the whole Republic Preservation Project. Now, I was looking at one of them, Hellfire, which I think is, a, is it in Cinecolor? It's in a yeah. a two basically a two strip color process and true color, true yeah. color okay and it's you know it looks really good i mean they're clever about picking the things that will reproduce well in this limited color palette and you you kind of don't notice you just notice it's a movie with a lot of red in it it takes you a while to see what's missing if you're even thinking about it and you know probably people back then weren't even thinking about it so well i think that's you know it's 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 a tribute to republic and the innovation that they figured out because technicolor would not do poverty row right technicolor would only do you know the major studios so they had to find a way to do color that wasn't technicolor and so they you know and and um republic really started um as a film lab and so was always very much involved with film lab technology all the way through the history of republic and so uh, the true color process, which there was a two strip process, there was a three strip process, they changed different ways they did true color over time. So true color is sort of an umbrella term for a lot of different specific color processes. Uh, but yes, I agree, there are some wonderful, wonderful uses of sort of that two color look. Um, some of the Roy Rogers films are also in true color. And, you know, fantastic, right? It's the Western. It's got sort of the perfect palette with the sage greens and the sort of sienna browns that are in Westerns that they use really inventively. Uh, it, it, I, I think they look great. Yeah, so how is, I mean, something like that, when you approach restoring that, how does that work? I mean, do you have, you said some of these things don't even have prints. They just have the negative. What kind of... How's that process work? Yeah, 
Yeah, you do. You do have. There is a bunch of guesswork there, and just trying to make sure that you're replicating to the best of your abilities, and a lot of research into what kind of colors people were going for when they were working with True Color and Cinecolor. So we worked with, you know, just doing research at libraries and, you know, uh, and testing and talking to experts in the field who had dealt with different color processes and, you know, just trying to do our best to get that color back. And, you know, there's also something that really happens when you sort of get it right. It, it sort of, you, you, you just sort of, you can see, okay, that makes sense now. You know, there is that moment when you're in the color room and you're like, yep, that's, that's, that's it. That happens as well. So, um, yeah, but just to, trying to do our best to do justice to those, those beautiful two color films. And I think they came out really nice. Yeah. Besides Republic, are there any other oddball corners of the collection that are particularly interesting to you? Oh yeah, there's tons of them. I mean, there's, there's wonderful, I mean, there, the early, there's some early Fleischer films that are just wonderful. Some of the features as well as the shorts, um, and, and short subjects generally, We've preserved some short subjects, musical short subjects, and other things like that, that have sort of, like, one of them had a very, uh, you know, an, an early appearance of Sammy Davis Jr. on film when he was still with the Mazden Trio, a vaudeville act um, that was captured in his musical short. So, yeah, there's all sorts of different treasures you come across when you're preserving films. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a total privilege. Now, where do those things, I mean, do they ever wind up anywhere they get stuck on discs as extras or who gets to see them you know we 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 are constantly advocating within the studio about this great stuff and it it does you know happen from time to time that you know we'll we'll get something like um the untouchables which we recently remastered is coming out and there is a a cartoon short that they're watching which we preserved and that's going to actually go as an extra oh, nice. on the on the on you know, so we're we're constantly telling people about you know about this stuff and how they can be used, and everybody knows what pests we are. Hey, do you know about this? Hey, do you know about that? We do little reels to show off the collection. So we're constantly <laughs> just trying to, you know, I do presentations at TCM Fest to sort of show some of the treasures of the library. You know, there's all sorts of different ways that we try to make sure people know about some of the the lesser known aspects of the of the Paramount archives. Now, besides film, I know you, there, you also have preserved things from the studio's history. Um, tell me about your archive of, of stuff, the grandma's attic part, portion of this. Um, you know, my, I'll tell you what my favorite object is that we have in the archive, which is in, in um, 1912, uh, you know, Adolf Zucker released Queen Elizabeth, um, with um, Sandra, Sarah Bernhardt, um, and I, I do that every time, and <laughs> it was a huge success and really kicked off Paramount's pictures as we know it, right? Um, the whole idea was that if you put somebody that people know in a movie, they will show up. What a concept. <laughs> what a concept. Kind of caught on. Um but the original contract that Adolf Zucker signed to, uh, to, to get the distribution rights for, um, for Queen Elizabeth exists in our archive. And I, I, that's just such a 
foundational artifact for Paramount Pictures. It's, and it's and it's two pages long, right? Yeah. Which is like no yeah. like no contract written today. Um, and uh, so it's and it's and it's nice. It's got his wonderful, very you know elaborate signature on it, and uh, it's a, it's a wonderful object. Uh, but we have, um, you know, we have the costumes are fantastic too. They uh, we they some of them date back to the silent era. Uh, we don't have every costume from the Paramount from Paramount history. You know, like every studio, um, uh, our costume department was really our costume archives for a long time, and a lot of those costumes, like every studio, have been sold off over the years. But but there are some real gems. Um, the necklace from Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, um, some some wonderful, you know, from some of the more recent movies, all the costumes from the Star Trek movies, um, you know, just fantastic, wonderful objects. And um, our costume archivist, Randall Throp, has done an incredible job of, you know, really exhibiting these costumes in different ways and getting people interested in them. And they're, they, they feature on our, on our tour. Um, uh, we've done some restoration and reconstruction on some of the jewelry from the Ten Commandments, huh. uh, which is really huh. incredible, it was you know, and actually exhibited that in a show in um, Austria, which uh, compared real Egyptian jewelry with movie Egyptian jewelry. <laughs> so that was fantastic. So yeah, some some really wonderful stuff. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, I mean, for all the research Demille did, I suspect it looks. Somewhere between ancient Egypt and 1956. So, yeah, he did do a ton of research. They really did. They did try to use um, some, you know, some very authentic stuff. But of course, yes, it's got movie movie polish on it at the end. <laughs> but yeah, they did do their research, and we have, you know, we have some original drawings with, you know, little pieces of uh, of the research book stuck in, and yeah, they 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 really went all out on Ten Commandments, as you probably know. Yeah, that was one thing I really liked in uh, the court jesters. I mean, the opening song is about how authentic it's going to be, and as soon as it starts, yeah, this is this is movie, right. movie, movie medievalism. It's not it as yeah. no resemblance to reality. Right. Um, is there anything else that you wish people would know about running? You know, of how a studio protects its its films, its content, um, so they'd stop bugging you about it? <laughs> I mean, I just have to give a shout out to some of the people that actually do the work, you know, uh, the team, uh, the preservation staff who, you know, search all over the world for the most original elements to make sure that we've got everything, um, who educate themselves about the history of motion picture technology, who work closely with directors and cinematographers to make sure we're doing things right, um, you know, who also have had to learn about, you know, file-based media and digital technology and expanded their knowledge in that way. Uh, you know, they're just, they're all just become incredible experts and that's really how you preserve film with really good people. So shout out to Charlotte Johnson and her team for you know, just doing an incredible job every day with these films. That's 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 really the secret sauce of preservation is having really great people. So, do you find things sometimes in far flung corners of the world that 
ought to have been in, in a file at Paramount all along? Well, you know, I think it's true for every archive uh, because film is a, you know, it's a, it's a duplicated medium, right? So films were distributed all over the world. So uh, copies can exist in other archives all the time. It, it, and it creates really a sort of, a, an, you know, a, an absolutely incentivized collaboration between archivists and studios and uh, public libraries all over the world. Like, what do you have on this title? We're starting to preserve it is a regular question. And we all work together to make sure that, you know, we're sharing the best materials across the board. And uh, so that's one of the, the, you know, wonderful aspects about this field is, you, you know, you, you win by collaborating, you know, by protecting yourself, you're not going to get anywhere. You know, you have to be, you have to work with other people. And that's great. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. Roman Holiday is also one that's been released in Paramount Presents. Um, that was a really wonderful restoration, one I really love, you know, so check that one out. Love Story, as we talked about. Um, you know, the Paramount Presents label is definitely focused on some of the restoration work we've done, and they've done a terrific job of getting them out there. But, you know, a lot of our titles are out there streaming, too. So I would say watch them. They're out there. What else could he be but a jester? A jester? A jester? A funny idea, a jester. No butcher, no baker, no candlestick maker, and me with the look of a fine undertaker impressed her as a jester. But where could I learn any comical turn? It was not in a book on the shelf. No teacher to take me to mold me and make me a merry man, fool, or an elf. But I'm proud to recall that in no time at all, with no other recourses but my own resources, with firm application and determination. I made a fool of myself. <laughs> Links for the Court Jester and other titles in the Paramount Presents series will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. I wish you'd forget your principles, Ruby. I must have you. Your golden hair, your fascinating eyes, and alluring smile, and lovely arms, your form divine. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is this a proposal or you take an inventory? Now, uh, take care of these men. Yes, give them all my address. Well, Thank you. I'm sorry you think more of your diamonds than you do of your soul. I'm sorry you think more of my soul than you do of my diamonds. Oh, well, I'm caught between two evils. I generally like to take the one I never tried. I see a man in your life. What, only one? There were other saucy dames in the risque world of pre-codes. But there was only one Mae West, whose frank sexual desire on screen was a big part of what got us the code in the first place. Now Kino Lorber brings her complete 1930s work, nine films, to Blu-ray. Kat Ellinger, British writer on films and editor of the horror magazine Diabolique, does the commentary tracks on three of the releases, She Done Him Wrong, Every Day's a Holiday, and Going to Town. We last spoke with her about the silent Peter Pan. I started by asking Kat, a Brit, if Mae West was as famous in the UK as she was in America. Yeah, kind of. I would assume so. I mean, I don't know about young people. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm 47 and I know who she is. Some films got shown on TV here when I was a kid, so I don't know. Okay. Yeah, and tell me, how, how did you discover her? How did I discover her? Probably just through TV. Yeah. Just watching, yeah. We used to be quite lucky because we used to get quite a lot of sort of Hollywood old comedies or classic comedies showed on TV here. 
I don't know if that's the case now, but then obviously we have like cable channels like TCM and talking pitches and stuff. So probably got more choice these days. Whether young people bother watching those, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was all we had then. We had like four channels, so it was that or nothing. Yeah. Now I know more choice means you can watch it and you can also avoid it more easily if you want. Yeah. To, so. <laughs> Um, yeah, what did you think of this strange person, Mae West, <laughs> when you when you saw her? I don't know. It took me a long time to really understand, like, how important she was and how transgressive she was. Sorry, my dog's getting excited. That's right. Do- dogs in the background are a big part of this show. <laughs> He's a fan of Mae West as well, obviously. <laughs> um, it. I think it takes a certain maturity to really understand the full impact of may west and just how important she was uh, i think we especially like today if we look at like pop stars like beyonce and you know these pop stars that use sex to to sell in their videos may west was like the prototype for that but we it takes a while to sort of really appreciate that and i don't think we hear much about may west especially like in this whole feminist sort of getting people from the olden days, so to speak, and saying, oh, this person was a feminist and this person was a feminist. I haven't really seen too much of that done with me, but she really was like a a proto-feminist in so many ways. And then somebody who actually, she actually embraced that mantle later on in the 70s, whereas people like Marlena Dietrich, were kind of appalled to be labelled feminists. They were, I know Marlena was like, she didn't agree with women's lib in so many ways. So she never embraced that. But May did and wrote about, because she spent a lot of time writing, I guess, later on in her career, so she could put her views down. She, she was very proud to have done that. But, you know, I guess... When you see her, she is like a little bit strange. <laughs> There's no one else like Mae West, is there? And she's so abrupt and just so ballsy. But I don't know when it was, but it, I feel like she's always been there. But she definitely had like a major impact on, you know, um, apart from the glamorous aspect, there's certain parts of my personality that have Mae West in them. <laughs> Put it that way. I haven't got the time or the money for a glamour regime, though, which she never let up on, even when she was really old. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was aware of her, I, I guess before I even knew what pre-code movies were, there was Mae West, who sort of embodied pre-code in a lot of ways. But she's really different from anybody else in it. You know, they they might be sinners or transgressive, but, you know, the idea was to land that guy in the end. And she wasn't about landing any one guy. Yeah, she was brilliant. She was, I mean, this whole idea that she never married, even though she was secretly married, like it's, it's so Mae West that it comes out as a scandal. Like, oh, my God, she's still married. Whereas some <laughs> with it like but for me west it's like oh my god get this get cover this up you know nobody can know i'm married because the whole thing was i don't need a guy and to say that in 1920 and 1930 that was a hell of a thing to do 
a hell of a thing to do. And the people loved her. They absolutely loved her. I think the turn against her was really to do with middle-class film critics and the public. That and the code really muted her, but the popularity was still there. If you look at, she went back to the stage and continued right. to be successful there. But this whole kind of um, sort of weird Puritan attitude about sex, it was, te- someone like May was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Although it's, I was just thinking, I think my, my first exposure to May West, which is probably most people's, My Little Chickadee, which is like the, the, most un-May West role in all the films that she did because it's like when she's been totally castrated, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that you keep using male metaphors for her persona. Yeah, it's weird because she wasn't... This is the thing. She she did have certain aspects to her that were masculine, but she wasn't masculine. In fact, she was incredibly feminine, hyper-feminine. That was part of her persona was the the glamour and the fashion and everything it was all hyper stylized right. and very very feminine i think we often attribute those characteristics like assertiveness and her, the way she was like a, would have been like a, a bachelor playboy if she was a guy to masculinity but they're not necessarily masculine things but we don't have feminine words for them the feminine words opposites that we have are like slurs you know, it would be sure. a slut or a bitch. It it would be wouldn't be a positive thing. So right. the only words you do have for that is like a male word, which is a positive thing. But she wasn't masculine. I think the thing she understood was she understood she was living in a man's world. She totally, utterly understood that. But she, I think, because of the support from her mother, her mother just doted on her really gave her everything that she wanted gave her almost this like overinflated sense of ego which again is seen as a bad look on a woman but can be like a positive trait in a man like arrogance women should never be arrogant but may west was completely arrogant and right. you know <laughs> it's like and that scene is like very um feminine but she never saw a glass ceiling and she was able to use the fact that she was a woman and use her sexuality to kind of, I don't know, navigate part of that landscape on her own terms. If you look at the amount of power that she had, even as a, on a studio contract, she she had a, a massive amount of power just for like five years, maybe. A power that nobody else had. But she understood her worth and she understood how to play the game. Um so she she was kind of she she wasn't masculine no but she did adopt masculine traits like the swagger I love yes. the Mae West swagger <laughs> yeah the swagger I think is is such a thing you know you don't mind arrogance if it comes with a wink and a and some style then you sort yeah, of admire she, it she and she had to, that like, yeah she knew how to kind of embrace those two things so she I don't think she was as much well she definitely wasn't a threat to the public because they loved her but she was a threat to the establishment because they were just like who the hell is this right (laughs) (laughs) get her away from my children yeah (laughs) well I think it's interesting too that you know here's here it is in the 30s you know the other pre-code actresses you know playing 
roles with more sexuality to them, but she was she was often in period roles. It's like she was wasn't violating our mores; she was violating Victorian mores in her story. So that was okay. Yeah, I mean, she was very clever, very very clever woman when it came to her brand, when it came to her writing. She understood the public. She understood how to get away with certain things. Although not always, because she went to prison for right. writing scandals. Or even turned that into a PR stunt. She could have just paid a fine. But instead, she very publicly goes to prison for 10 days. And is seen parading around the town with the governor and his wife having dinner. And <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, I mean, again, she did it with style. If you're going to go to jail, that's the way to do it, I guess. You did the commentary tracks for three of the nine films that Kino is releasing. Um, Tell me about those. Let's start with She Done Him Wrong, which is maybe the quintessential uh, star vehicle for her, the one that established her. Yeah, She Done Him Wrong was the first and probably the purest Mae West film that you get because she... You know, she gets picked up on a. She does night after night in 1932, which was a, a, a George Raft vehicle, basically with constant comings. It wasn't a Mae West film. Right. She's got like two or three scenes in it, but she basically just steals the entire film in that, to the point where all this fan mail's coming in and she gets a contract. She's already middle age at this point. This is the most incredible thing about it. She's not some ingenue studio product. She's like this fully formed icon who comes with this very sort of provocative history as a playwright, as an actress in vaudeville, somebody who'd been arrested, somebody who'd been involved in obscenity trials and had taken on the courts as well, and in some cases won. You'd think a studio would would like be like, no chance that we go in near anyone like that. But yet they pick her up on this contract and she's got all this stuff in there, like cast approval, you know. She's, uh, so she does She Done Him Wrong, which isn't just a Mae West vehicle. It was like, it was directed by Lowell Sherman. But as Lowell Sherman found out, nobody directs Mae West. <laughs> so she's like, uh, based on Diamond Lil, which was her own play. But the, the, the code office had sort of said you're not doing diamond lil are you so uh paramount are like no 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 it's a totally different thing like it is it is basically diamond lil. right <laughs> <laughs> um no it's a completely different thing so um they changed like a few things about it and and it's the purest that we get to see that we get to see may west being may west because in ev- in every successive film after that as we get towards the the Breen years, the code in 1934, um, she gets more and more sort of put upon. But this was the film that also saved Paramount. Paramount were on the verge of bankruptcy and they made so much much money on this film that, you know, it really bailed them out. And Adolf Zuckor actually said, you know, the head of Paramount in his autobiography thanked me for this. But but then a couple of years later, the studio were happy to throw her under a bus because that's Hollywood, basically. They're like, cheers then. But you've also got Cary Grant in this one, who I love. 
Cary Grant. And this goes back to May's like kind of arrogance. She always claimed she was responsible for discovering Cary Grant. She totally ignored the fact he'd been in Blonde Venus before that with Marlena Dietrich. And, uh, and he was kind of, uh, the studio didn't really know what to do with him at the time. He was just sort of hanging around. If you see him in a lot of his early roles, he's not Cary Grant. It's right. like they, they just didn't know what to do. It's only when he gets really to the screwball in 37 and starts doing things like Topper that he becomes Cary Grant as we know him. But um, but May always kind of claimed Cary Grant as her own discovery. It's like a famous line, you know, she sees him on the lot and and says, oh, if he can talk, I'll have him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Cary Grant in the film really is like everybody else. He is just there to support Mae West and, you know, whoever she's playing, Diamond, the Diamond New character in this case, whoever she's playing, she is... The most beautiful woman, the clever, the cleverest, the the most amazing criminal. That she's got men throwing themselves at her, threatening suicide, escaping prison. You know, she she's she is. It's basically everyone around her is just there to sort of promote this character in the in the middle. Lady Lou is the name they chose for this one, but it is really Diamond Neil, and Carrie Grant is this sort of. Salvation Army, he's posing as a Salvation Army captain um, and she works in this club and has all these sort of this past with this criminal and stuff but it's absolute scam it's scandalous stuff for 1932 the double entendres, the, the fact that this is a woman who's been sort of playing these criminal types and you know collecting diamonds, she's absolutely loaded even though she's a dance hall singer because she's been having these sexual affairs and all of this is kind of in plain sight in the film. And it's when you look at it, even from today's standards, you think, Jesus, how did they get away with this? This is like incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now I have to say, I'm not so fond of she done him wrong and I'm no angel. I mean, she definitely has a lot of good lines in them, but no one else has anything except the job of setting up her good lines. Yeah, but that's yeah. Mae West, so yeah, you've yeah. got to appreciate that, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who else, like, what other actress would have the goal to do that? Yes, true. It, 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 you just have to, even if you don't appreciate the film, I think you have to appreciate the amount of power that she had as a woman in a time when women just didn't have any power at all. And yet she somehow infiltrates paramount like the a studio with all this power she's bossing the director around she's got everybody else set up in this film to make her look amazing and she's basically this very short kind of shapely middle-aged woman (laughs) right i'd say shapeless smart smart mouth yeah. And it's just like this is this is like we've I don't think we've ever seen anything like it since. Yeah, I suppose there are people in vaudeville or something you could kind of point to. I don't know Sophie Tucker, whoever. But but yeah, in movies, I mean, she's definitely one of a kind. Yeah, she was incredible, and it it kind of starts with this film, and and it's interesting if you look at the press from around that time it it just started off this crazy may west 
sort of obsession where people were like you had women going out buying Mae West hats, like dressing in these weird turn of the century clothes <laughs> and putting themselves back into corsets because this is just after the jazz age where all the women right. cut their hair short and have got rid of the corsets and they're wearing the flapper dresses all of a sudden they're sort of buckling themselves into these sort of 1900 skirts and wearing big hats and there was so and even then there's like an undertone in there that certain people are worried you know you get the odd a letter in the fan column of you know, from some angry ha- housewife who's concerned about her husband watching Mae West films or doesn't think Mae West is feminine and thinks Mae West is a bad influence. So you st- even start to see it around that first film, even though like the press are absolutely obsessed with her. You can go through the whole of like 1932s fan magazine uh, like the hollywood magazines and may west is on every third page and yet she was really private she stayed out of that hollywood circle she didn't go to parties she just basically kept herself to herself she was teetotal she was like yeah. really clean living in, in reality but she very carefully managed the image that she had which was a which was another really good it just shows what a good businesswoman she was right now another one you did is called Going to Town, which I have to admit I've never seen. Uh it's a it's a Western comedy and which seems to become where she's fr- more frequently set as the years go by. It's also after the production code. So what's Going to Town like? Yeah, Going to Town is an interesting film. So this was what a one, two, fourth film she'd had a lot of censorship on bell of the 90s hit a lot of censorship and going to town is 1935 so it's literally a year after joseph breen has come in and they start laying down the law you you can't do this you can't do that you can't do that there are certain things in it that she snuck in um, the good thing about Mae West was they'd often present a script to the code office that looked fairly innocuous, but when she said it out loud, <laughs> it became porno- pornographic. So, <laughs> uh, But, yeah, going to town's interesting because, again, in that, I don't want to give too many spoilers if you haven't seen it, but she plays this woman called Cleo Borden, and she is literally, she's, like, about to basically get married to he's like a rancher but he's also like a bit of a villain i'm not quite sure what this guy does but he he's basically amounted a lot of property and a lot of money and he's not altogether legal put it that way and they have this they have this bet him and may west uh that basically if she wins this card game no i don't know if it's card no it's dice she wins this thing she'll get all this property and if she doesn't she'll marry him but she sets up a prenup and to cut a long story short he dies within the first 10 minutes and she becomes this incredibly rich woman she meets this other guy who's a bit of a snob and um decides she wants him humiliates him because she's the ranch owner now with a with a rodeo um with a what do you call it lasso sorry i'm not american i'm not down with yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um 
and he storms off and she decides she's going to infiltrate high society to win this guy. And so this one's really interesting, even though it's not exactly as popular as the earlier ones, because it has this really interesting class sort of context um, in that she will not be put down by the high society she like stumbles into Paramount High Society, basically. You know the world, everybody. Sure. Like, <laughs> but Mae West is in there, and and she will not be put down by these snobby women. She refuses to accept that this guy won't won't isn't interested in her because of her class. And so there's this like huge sort of class thing in there. I think that we talk so much about Mae West and sexuality, and I mentioned this on my commentary that we often forget about Mae West and class. She was from Brooklyn and she was proud to be from Brooklyn at a time when sound was in very early days. And a lot of actors who had like sort of New York accents or lower class accents, say um, were, were being pushed out of the film industry. And she comes in like, she won't, change how she speaks she's one of the people and there's always like a class aspect in the stories as well like a bit like even when she plays a criminal she's a bit of a robin hood type and i think that's another thing that people really responded to outside of the sexuality so in in this film it's all about that really she can't do much about sex so so instead it becomes like a, a diatribe against snobs basically and it was the snobs that started to criticize her in the press it was the snobs that sort of put an end to may west on the screen all right and then the uh, third one that you did commentary for is 1937's every day is a holiday and now we're well into the late half of the yeah. 30s where things are very tamed down so what's I mean, that like for her yeah, I mean, that one was difficult because she had to be so careful and they'd become, because we haven't really talked about it, but she also wrote her own scripts. They'd sometimes be credited to other writers, but she would have like script approval. She'd get involved with everything, basically, with her costumes, with who she was going to be acting with, with how the scripts were written and and so it'd usually be a co-writing credit on that but but this was another one that kind of played on the on the class angle she plays this like criminal called peaches o'day he's like this sort of low life i don't know she's like a con woman when we first meet her it's new year's eve and she's selling this foreign guy brooklyn bridge and uh, and and then she meets this she meets this posh guy in a car and sort of ingratiates herself in there. But she's a wanted woman. Like the police captain is out to get her, and he's got the whole force out. And there is there's one of the police guys who who's kind of hung up on her, and he helps her out, Captain McCary. And and so it it starts with that this kind of weird not love triangle but this these cops trying to run may out of town but also because they can't control how much they're in love with her is basically the insinuation um and it ends up in this political campaign 
with these two opposing cops running against each other and Mae West heading the show. And if that sounds bonkers, you then get Louis Armstrong appears <laughs> in the middle of it. Like, just in a carnival parade. I mean, it's nuts, but it's... And I and I really love the film. I think, again, there's interesting stuff about class in there. There's this... Um, it's very anti-establishment when you look at how she's basically saying that this guy, the chief of police, Quaid, who's played by Lloyd, Lloyd Nolan, Nolan. Yeah. Is, is corrupt and the police are all corrupt. So it's like having a massive pop at the establishment, which I have no idea how they got that through. So it's got it's almost as if a, she's fighting back at the establishment that we're trying to censor her. And she's looking at stuff like hypocrisy, like basically how all these cops go to prostitutes or they call women from the vaudeville or the theatre and then they they put themselves up as... You've got this police chief sort of putting himself up as the senator, this, you know, he's, he's there for the virtue and he's moralistic when it basically it's a crock. So it seems to be Mae West's... I don't know, like her sort of, if she can't get at the establishment through sex, she'll get at them in one way or another. <laughs> like yeah. She, she will. Yeah, there's a lot of frustration, I think, in her career at that point. She'd also had this massive, massive scandal, uh, which was another thing that kind of marked her out as dangerous for the studio. I'm trying to think whether it was before going to town or every day's a holiday, I think it might have been every day's a holiday, where she'd appeared on the radio doing this like Adam and Eve skit. And you can actually hear that. It's on YouTube wonderfully. Um, where she's playing Eve and she, and this was broadcast on a Sunday, somebody's great idea to broadcast it live on a Sunday <laughs> at, at tea time so the whole family can hear she plays Eve in the Garden of Eve and she actually seduces the snake and tricks him into getting the apple for her because she, Adam just wants a, a quiet life in Eden and he's boring and she's bored. She wants to get out of there. <laughs> he played this thing and the, the film had to be delayed because Paramount were like, there, there was just so much scandal about this thing. It was just like, who the hell is this woman? People were absolutely outraged that she would do this and i just i think it's a wonderful thing obviously but <laughs> <laughs> yeah it uh you wonder how could you not know by then that <laughs> may west is may west but yeah i know and give it like it was some well her argument was well and the radio station's argument was um we we've basically played that skit before with other actresses and there was never a never a problem like they they took the we didn't know we never knew anything bad was gonna happen <laughs> it only got it only got dirty when may west did it yeah but the way she says it is absolutely amazing it's just absolute filth and <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so she did the nine films that Kino's releasing, and then I think just one more in the 40s, um, The Heat's On. And then, I don't know, I mean, other than having a life preserver named for her, 
Um, she was she mostly did live performances and and probably was still allowed on the radio at that point. No, she was actually banned from the radio for quite a while as well. Like Mae West, I think, got banned from almost every medium, didn't she? She got banned from the theatre, banned from radio, banned from TV. And she did a TV broadcast where they showed, she was supposed to be showing someone around her apartment. I, I don't know much about American radio or TV personalities, I'm afraid, but it was some big show. And she was just pure filth again, talking about so, so, so that caused a load of stuff. Um, the stage, she was arrested for that. She was too filthy for film. And but then in seventy, she does uh, Myra Brackenrich, right, which is a bonkers film. And Sex Step Man, now come on, which is just <laughs> unbelievably bad. I'm really sad Kino aren't doing that one yeah. as well because that. <laughs> That wanna, film to me is just pure joy. It, it shouldn't <laughs> be, but it is, and I'm so glad that it is. Yeah, no, I mean, talk about just the the sheer power of one star and her ego to warp reality, you know, that I'm going to be 86 years old and still irresistible. So. And getting it on with, like, Ringo Starr so, and Timoth- 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 very young Timothy Dalton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're all acting like she's the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean, it's incredible. Well, that's how it always was for her, so. <laughs> Think, girl, with the proper provocation, you could squeeze through that fence around the tree? That's the forbidden tree. Oh, don't be technical. Answer me this, my palpitating python. Would you like to have this whole paradise to yourself? Certainly. Okay, then pick me a handful of fruit. Adam and I will eat it. And the Garden of Eden is all yours. What do you say? Here, right in between those pickets. I'm, I'm stuck. I'll shake your hips. There, there, now you're through. I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, but you're doing all right. Now get me a big one. I feel like doing a big apple. <laughs> Here you are, Mrs. Eve. Oh. Ah, oh, I see. Nice going, swivel hips. That was Mae West getting in trouble with the Chase and Sanborn Company. Kino Lorber will release nine Mae West films on June 29th. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Andrea Callis and Kat Ellinger, and to Pamela Grant and John Kessler. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you think too much of a good thing is wonderful, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. I changed my mind. Does it work any better?